You may be seated. John chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Was our scripture reading this morning is the text for our, our message. As you're flipping and turning your Bible there to follow along with us, I've had a lot of emails, some from you in the church and some from just friends and people who know I'm in the ministry within the last week wanting to know if uh, this indeed is the end of all things, you know, with the conflict in the Middle East and they uh, read Bible prophecy and struggle to understand it like all of us do, and is this the end? I don't know. Um, No one knows except the Lord and the Father. I can say this. We've been through conflicts similar to this many times in the Middle East. This is not a new event. And so, what is our approach as a believer? Trust Christ, watch for Him, and live as if He will return today. That's all He told us to do. Trust Him for salvation, watch for Him at any moment, and live as if He will come today. And, uh, and so that's the way you can be prepared. That's the way you can prepare your children. Um, don't grab the paper, grab the CNN headlines and try to then read them into the scripture somewhere in Revelation or some prophetic. It's just, it's useless. It's a waste of time. You can't do it. Uh, if it was a code to be deciphered, it would have been deciphered long ago. There, it's not there. So I want to kind of give you that. I got probably, I don't know, 20 emails this week. I like I'm some kind of expert <laughs> uh, or on, on the end times or something. I, I don't know. I wanted to type in, you know, you know, email John Hagee or somebody that has spent their whole life studying this thing. I don't know the answer. But uh, anyway, that's my two cents on it. Trust Christ, watch for him, and live as if he will come back before you go to bed tonight. That's all you can do. Jesus and the heart of man. That's our set. That's our text. That's the essence of the three, uh, the the verses, the three verses that are before us in this passage. Jesus knows the heart of all men. Jesus did not believe in the belief of the people of Jerusalem. Now that sounds like a play on words, but that actually is what the text says. Look at verse twenty-three of the text. He was in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover. Many believed. You see that word believed in His name. Now if you skip down in the text to um, verse 24, it says Jesus on His part did not entrust. The word believed in 23 and the word entrust in 24 is the same word. So... That's why the first point of this message is Jesus did not believe in the belief of the people in Jerusalem. He didn't trust it. He didn't entrust Himself to them. Because why? Because He knew the heart of every man. That's the answer given to us in 25. The people believed in Jesus with less than saving faith. They believed in Jesus. I... 
I, it's very common in our day to hear people talk this way and, and say things like, I believe in Jesus, isn't it? You know, if you try to talk with them about the Scripture, they'll say, oh yeah, I got that, I believe in Jesus. And if you accept that answer at face value, you might not really explore deep enough to know what Jesus they believe in. Because Jesus comes in a lot of forms and fashions in our day, doesn't He? There's the fashionable Jesus of the postmodern movement who is some uh, philosopher, great man, lived a good life, brought good ways for us to live together in peace and harmony, and the essence of life is just to try to live at peace with everybody. Tolerance. Uh, get along with them. That's what Jesus taught. Don't, don't you understand that, they would tell us. That's one Jesus. There's another Jesus. It was famous back in the 70s, you know, before I was born. Uh, the Jesus movement. And you might remember that Jesus. Uh, and there was a historic Jesus. We started hearing about that in the 80s when they began to have these very brilliant, very brilliant professors, uh, mainly from uh, the West Coast in California and in Europe, came together and read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they tried to decipher which words are Jesus' actual words and which ones are not His and then all in between there. Uh, and I know that throws you for a curveball because, you know, you were raised with a red letter edition and if it's red, Jesus said it, right? Well, you know, the Bible wasn't written with red ink in certain places and black ink in other places. It's just all on a scroll somewhere. And, uh, and so they went and started a historical research of this, and they cast lots, in a sense. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean they cast balls. They put these little different colored balls in, a, in the hat, and they voted on each of the texts. And they came out with a very few words, actually, in the Testaments that they say belong to Jesus. And so they, in a way, recreated Jesus for us. Uh, in the in the 80s, and it's still popular even today. Uh, matter of fact, I had uh, at Locke and uh, Annalise rehearsal dinner. I was sitting with Eric McDaniel. He just returned from Oxford, where he took some classes, and they had this British television show shooting uh, a live show with them in the audience. These pastors from all over the world um, and different denominations and groups. And this one expert who was involved with the Jesus project made the statement i'm a christian atheist that's the kind of thing you run into if you talk to this man on the street and you said are you a christian he would say yes if you stop there see we can't see his heart we would not know that he then would follow that with but i don't believe in anything and so if we stop on the surface, if we in Jerusalem with Jesus, if we were there in the street with Him as He did these signs and miracles, we would see this mass of people saying, I believe in Jesus. And, and without being able to see the heart, we would accept them and accept their statements. And, and I want to say to you, and we're going to in the end conclude with a text out of Matthew that will show that's all we can do. When a person tells you they're a Christian, you're not a judge. And I'm not a judge. What is the responsibility? And we'll get to our responsibility as believers. Our responsibility is not to know their heart. 
Listen, you can't know your heart. I sure can't know Seth's heart if I don't know my own heart. Okay? So I see a lot of Christians playing with a Ouija board or basically or a crystal ball trying to project whether a person's a real believer or not. It's, it's a waste of time. You can't know that about that other person as a judge. And I will get to, we'll, we'll follow up with what, what should we do then as Christians. But know this, Jesus knows the heart of every person. Jesus knew it on the spot. He knew it before they knew it. He knew it, he knew it intimately. So understand you can't take this text and what Jesus says and does here and then extrapolate that out to you and me and say, we can do the same. We can't. We don't know each other's hearts. I don't, you don't know my heart. The reality of it is you don't know my heart. You can see fruit from my life, hopefully. You can see good and bad. You can, you can examine me and, and live around. My wife has to live with me, bless her heart. And she sees more of me than anybody in here. And she can tell whether I'm true or false in a lot of ways. But in the end, she can't pass judgment on me. And I can't pass judgment on her because, final judgment, because I don't know her heart. But the Bible tells us clearly here that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew the heart of every man there, of every person. But they believed in him. And I want to get back to this because that's, that's important. When you had the gospel shared with you as maybe a young person or whatever, what did they tell you to do? Ask him in your heart. What, what other terminology might they have used? Except Jesus. What else? The word I just used that they did. Believe in Jesus. Right? Believe Jesus. And we get that from Romans 10, where it says that you must believe. Right? But belief is a complicated issue in the Scripture, and I want to try to make it simple. There's three parts to saving faith. Saving faith, saving belief contains all three of these things. Now, don't get thrown off by this. Just write these down and use them in a conversation as a conversation piece so you sound smart, okay? This word here, mean, notitia, means nothing but knowledge. It's the aspect of faith dealing with knowledge. You can't believe in what you don't know about. Contrary to some's belief, you can't believe in something you've never heard of and have no knowledge of it. You can't. We hear today this common statement. It does not matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. I hear that often. I see it. I pick it up in conversation. I see it in people's lives. I see it on the television. I see it all over the place. I read it in the newspapers. Sincerity is the key, right? I mean, I'm sorry, but I can be sincerely wrong. And if I'm sincerely wrong, it doesn't do me a lot of good, right? I can be in a boat that's sinking and sincerely believe that boat's not sinking. But if the boat's sinking, it doesn't change it, that I don't believe it, right? I mean, do you see the point? Notitia, this part of belief, of faith, is key. Saving faith is never less than knowledge, but it's not only knowledge. That's a way to sum it up. R.C. Sproul said that. Saving faith is never less than knowledge, but it is never only knowledge. All right? So you've got to have the facts. The gospel must be presented 
The gospel is what transforms. It is the power to save a man. And so without knowledge, you can't be saved. But you need more. A census. This aspect of faith deals with intellectual assent. Conviction that the facts are true. Right? I know the facts and I know they're true. Some people talk about at this point a leap of faith. You've heard that kind of analogy. There was a whole movie done on the leap of faith, right? And, and what these people who preach this type of faith, and it's being taught in churches often, they get knowledge to the people and then they say, you have intellect belief, you, your mind believes these facts are true, and so they don't go to step three. They stop right here and say, now you just got to believe. You just got to jump in. You just got to trust that there's something. About... Indiana Jones was my favorite movie as a, as a kid, okay? I know that's 80s old stuff. But when he's standing on the cliff, you remember that? And there's this gulf that spans in front of him. What these people say to us as believers is, all you have to do now, if you know it's true, you know the facts and you know they're true, is take the step of faith, the leap of faith, which you can't see that bridge. you got to step out there. And then you'll find it. And thank, thank goodness that he stepped out on there and everything ended up okay. It would have ruined my childhood dreams, you know? But God is not like the director of Indiana Jones. He does not require you to step out as a leap of faith. Blind trust is not required for salvation. It's not a part of salvation. Knowledge, intellectual assent, and finally, this word fiducia comes in. Your bank has what is called fiduciary responsibility to you. Okay? You have trusted them with your money, and you trust that tomorrow when you go down to that bank, you can withdraw your money at any moment. Okay? And the federal government insures it up to, what, $100,000? So I've never had to worry about that. But I guess that means if the bank burns down, you get at least $100,000 back, theoretically. Now, we trust the bank with our money. We don't see our money. It's not seen. It's all on numbers and sheets and computers in this day. But it's there. It's not blind. It's there. And if I go and I give the teller my slip, she'll give me my money. Okay? That is trust. That is fiducia. That is saving. That's the saving step of faith. This is faith. This is faith. When you get to this level, it's saving faith. And what I'm saying about the people in Jerusalem, what the text seems to indicate about the people in Jerusalem is they're either here or here, but they never stepped here. They never trusted Christ. So He didn't trust them. He didn't entrust Himself to them. And I would propose to you that our churches, our world, is full of people somewhere in those first two levels of faith. They know a lot about Jesus, some type of Jesus at least. And they believe it's true, but they've never stepped down into the deep waters of trust. Just so you'll understand that these, this isn't just a theory that people came up with. James 2.19, James says to us, You believe in Christ? Very well. Even the demons in hell believe and tremble. 
If demons believe, why are they not saved? Because they do not trust. Trust is what's required in Romans 10. Flip with me to Romans 10. Hold your place in John and flip to Romans 10 because this is so important that we grasp as much of this truth as possible. Romans 10, begin in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and there's our word, believe, where? In your heart. Fiducia moves from your intellect to your heart. It's a positive disposition of your soul and your mind to an object. In this case, saving faith, the object of saving faith is Jesus Christ. When you have saving faith, when you have saving trust, when you have saving belief, you have a positive disposition, a positive belief that He is the only way that I will be saved. He's the only opportunity for salvation. You might have belief in Him at these other levels, but trust comes in here. He continues, Paul does, to write about this saving faith. If you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then verse 13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Belief. This is so crucial, not just to this message, but to your life. That I, that's why I've taken the time to try to divide it out and help us come to a better understanding. Because there are some in the room, I'm confident, who have all the facts that are necessary for salvation. You may have heard them your whole life. And you know them. There are even people here who have the intellectual commitment to those as truth. But your heart, your soul, your whole life is not in trust to Him. I, I, I like to try to use examples, and here's the best one applicable to this Scripture and to this truth. If you were drowning in the water, let's say you went down to Ohatchee and got in the Neely Henry, Henry, brave person that you are, and you're out there in the middle and you get a cramp and you begin to drown. You know you're drowning. Would you say you would know you were about to drown? You can't swim. You can't move, and you're in the middle of the channel. There's no hope. I'm dying. A life preserver is thrown to you. You can have knowledge of that life preserver and knowledge that you need the life preserver and make the intellectual commitment that that's the only way I can get out of here. But that life preserver is useless to you unless you trust it. You see? Unless you trust it, it's useless. And you will drown with the life preserver there. And what I'm saying is more than a life preserver, more than you being on top of the water trying to make your way, the Bible says we are dead in our sin. We have gone to the bottom of Lake Neely Henry. 
We are goners. We are dead. We have no hope. And far from throwing us a life preserver, Christ has come to us and dove in the water of death. He's dove in. He's gone to the very bottom. And He has rescued us from death. He has pulled us then to the surface. He has wrapped Himself into us, breathed life into our nostrils again, and given us life. What I'm trying to say to you is, you're in one of two camps this morning. You're either dead at the bottom in sin, or He's rescued you. There's no other camp to be in. These are the only two options.